he's always an extremely good, extremely moral character. He's always on the side of right and truth and justice. He's never cruel, he's never unkind. He's always trying to make peace. He always protects the underdog. He's an old-fashioned hero. Welcome, everybody, to episode 126 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which, as always, features David and Ben. And Ben, what are we talking about tonight? We are talking about very sad news this week in the world of our favorite TV show, Doctor Who, um, which is the death of Terence Dix. The one and only. The one and only literally irreplaceable former of the psyches of many young people across the planet Mm -hmm. um so yeah very very important very important part of doctor who i think his impact on doctor who is enormous and uh really he kind of carried that continuing line of uh what the show was from seeds of death the troughton era all the way uh, through the early 1980s with the anniversary, 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors. And I think even further into into writing novels, both for The Virgin New Adventures and for the BBC um, published Doctor Who novelizations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just being a great ambassador for the show as well. Um, and And also an incredibly prolific writer mm-hmm. uh, an incredibly prolific author um you know he wrote hundreds of books right and was just a great storyteller mm-hmm. um and just loved doctor who loved writing um i have only barely met him i mean he signed a book for me mm-hmm. um in the in the mid 90s uh, that's the kind of extent of my meeting Terry and you know and I only have that anecdote and one of the things I said to him and I, it's funny just looking at Twitter etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> um, I think he got this a lot and I think he said this a lot but I said you know Terry you are one of the people who you know taught me how to read mm. I owe all of my love of literature and reading to you and he said to me I get that a lot <laughs> Yeah, because he did. Yeah, um, a lot of children of the UK. Yeah, learn yeah. learn to read because they wanted to consume or uh, you know read these Doctor Who novels. Absolutely, and uh, he was the kind of prime writer of the target novelizations, and be- and before the uh, the VHS, before the home video mm-hmm. the era of home video, that was the only way that you could relive. Both stories that you'd seen, but actually, you know, more in some ways, more importantly for us, um, stories that you hadn't seen. Yeah. Do you remember what your first Terrence Sticks novel was? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, no, uh, I don't actually, because uh-huh. the ones that I remember reading first, most intently, were one, The Zabi, 
mm-hmm. um, which is by Bill Stratton, and to Cave Monsters, which is by Malcolm Hulk. I think it was probably Robot, actually. Mm-hmm. That was probably mm-hmm. the first Dick's novelization giant that I robot. read. <laughs> the Giant Robot. Doctor and the Giant Robot, of course, um, yeah. which he wrote He wrote for TV as well. So mm-hmm. um, uh, he, he, I think he was obviously um, uh, novelizing that. Um, but yeah, no, I, that that was probably the first one I read. Yeah, okay. the giant robot, and I and I think actually I can remember um, preferring the title of the giant robot. Um, mm-hmm. It's it always seemed to me at that age that that more accurately expressed how interesting the robot was. Not that it was a robot, but it was a giant robot. Right. So well done, well done, Terry for good for branding it. from Target because that it, that came exactly. out in 1975. So. He didn't have a lot of earlier ones in that. I think only Auton Invasion and Day of the Daleks, perhaps, Terror of the yeah. Autons. There are not a lot of them that were earlier than the yeah. giant robot. Yeah. I remember the cover of the Auton Invasion very, very clearly because uh, of the tentacles. Right. Um, Did you so, read his yeah. Abominable Snowman? Um, I read them all. I have yeah, them all. Yeah, okay. No, I, no, yeah, I read yeah. them all. I read them all. Oh, yeah. No, and they're, and they're great. They're really... They're, they're just... You know, they just snap along, great, just really good, pacey reading stuff. And especially his earlier ones, he would always expand and tell a little bit more of the story that actually made it to screen and really, I think, livened them up a lot. A lot of them uh, gave them more characters, more of a backstory, more motives, just more uh, a fleshing out uh, all of his mentor, Mac Hulk. Yeah. I mean, I think one that still stands out for me today is his novelization of the uh, Terror of the Ortons, mm-hmm. where he talks about Sontaran fragmentation grenade is the bomb that um, the master leaves for the doctor in uh, the doctor's unit laboratory. Um, and of course, you know, at, at the time, the third doctor, the Sontarans hadn't been invented. So mm-hmm. um, I always remember that as being like a neat little, ah, yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, Sontaran fragmentation grenade, of course. <laughs> and then even in... His later novelizations where he was cranking out, must have been a 10, 12 a year, he would always put in some extra lines of dialogue or just something different to distinguish them or or, or to make them distinct from the television serial that he was chronicling. Yeah, and I think, you know, and he wasn't, wasn't averse to just slightly altering plot a little bit just to get it to work better. Right. Uh, and again, I mean, I think we've talked about this quite recently, how... Uh, how much more epic he made something like the three doctors than it actually is on screen basically <laughs> right. and and when i when i rem- when i think about the three doctors i'm mainly thinking about terence dix's novelization of the three doctors rather than what we saw on the screen mm-hmm. and you know the characterization and the, just the epicness of that story and the flame of singularity and uh, omega's castle etc etc is just so you know, and he he took the opportunity to kind of you know just just write these stories up bigger, right? But he was he was he was just, he was just a great storyteller. I mean, I think one of the um, uh, things, and I think we I know we've mentioned this before on the on the podcast is you know where people talk about um, what the Doctor says and what the Doctor does, and fans of a certain kind will talk of the Doctor as you know an autonomous individual who has 
his his or her um, own thoughts and things to say. Well, th- that, obviously that's not true. Right. Um, uh, you know, the doctor only says what people write <laughs> write him to say. Right. Um, and you know, a lot of that was written by Terence Dix, and even more of that was script edited by Terence Dix. Mm-hmm. So where we think about the doctor's character, we're really thinking about the character of someone like Terence Dix. Yeah. His impact in the early 70s when he was the script editor really is evident when you look at how he wrangled the Bristol Boys, Bob Baker and Dave Martin, right. uh, hyper-creativity into something usable on the screen. And you get the impression from his anecdotes that he would tell either at conventions or for what I've seen them on the DVDs, is that he would think the writer's job was to write, do the pitch, write the first draft, take in the revisions. But after that, he wouldn't send it back because they're like, they've done their job. But his job as a script editor ultimately was to make it work. And he would fix the plot holes. He would fix where dialogue was sagging. And that was what he saw as a job as, as a professional is making it work. And the anecdote he always liked to tell is uh, save us from having to run the test card at tea time on Saturday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you posted something really great on Twitter, which is a, you know an excerpt of a documentary, where you know you mm-hmm. said, Barry Letts asked Terence, um, you know, how do you want to be remembered? And he basically said, I want to be remembered as a professional. Yeah. Um. You know, I want to be remembered as someone who got the job done. And I think, um, in some ways, that's that's something that we can all take away. Actually, is the important thing about any job is getting it done. Right. And if you think that being a script editor or a writer for TV isn't some kind of job that needs to be done on time and right, then you are wrong because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the last thing you want to do at tea time on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon is run the test card. Right. But he would do more than just get it done. He would make it good. And you look at just right. look at something like the War Games where he and Malcolm Hulk would have this 10 serial adventure to fill because other scripts had fell through and they hit upon a formula that would work where you'd have a whole bunch of action and then the plot would just move a little bit more forward after that 24 minutes and you'd still have this gripping non-retreaded serial but it was always building forward, and then you have this huge impact of where uh, Dix and Hulk introduced the Time Lords. And as we've said at the beginning of our Pertwee retrospective, then we have the whole early 70s where we're actually dealing with what does it mean that this traveler is a lord of time? And right. you just see Terrence Dix kind of working through that issue with his writers and uh, Barry Letts, his uh, friend and producer. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just, a, you know, he's got a, he's just, a, it's an economic plot-driven characters that are simple enough to, to kind of manipulate properly yet complicated enough to be satisfying Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's really really great storytelling. Right. There's no real well. We maybe we can talk about an agenda a bit a bit a bit further into the cast. But you know, there's no there's no there's no there's no unnecessary complexity there. I mean, we <laughs> you know during our eight our um, ace retrospective, we were a little bit critical of some of the 
student style complexity of some of the writers right. um, during the Cartmel era, which you know, which is fine, and people have to learn their trade somewhere. But Dix wasn't interested in it being complicated. Mm-hmm. He was interested in it being satisfying, right? And you know, well organized mm-hmm. um, uh, and professional is what he was interested in it being. Yeah. And if you look at the serials that he is credited for writing for for the program. Uh, rather, uh, with, within a screen or later through research, uh, we have The Dominators, which is the first one as assistant script editor that he was working on, then Seeds of Death. He wrote uh, uh, episodes three, three to six. Basically, he took Brian Hale's script and uh, finished it off. And then right. uh, co-writing 10 episodes of The War Games, the exit of Patrick Troughton with Mac Hulk. And then... The entire John Pertwee era, he was script editor. So that's five years of solid Doctor Who. And that's part of the reason why that is such a consistent era. But then he ushers in the Tom Baker years with Robot. And to me, that's a really satisfying story as an introduction. And it served as the introduction to the American uh, teens and children in the 1980s to Doctor right. Who. And I think Robot gets the stick a little bit, but it's a really satisfying story. And it, it anticipates how the Doctor will be in the later uh, under under the tutelage of Graham Williams, where it's a little more jokey, a little more sense yeah. of humor before it gets really uh, dark in the next episode of Ark and Space under the Hinchcliffe Holmes influence. So there's a lot that Terrence does with being a satisfying writer, and there's there's the the stories that he did in the Baker years are some of the more satisfying classic stories. Yeah, absolutely. No, no. I, I, I mean, robots are perfect. You know, it's exciting. It's pacey. Everyone has something to do, including you know even the mi- more minor characters. They've all they've all got something mm-hmm. to occupy themselves. You know, it 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 kind of moves unit on. It introduces Harry Sullivan. It it kind of moves the Doctor on from being John Pertwee to Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a great... He has evil villains and it has a sympathetic villain. Right. It's a reworking... I mean, again, sort of totally anticipating the Hinchcliffe era. You know, it's a <laughs> it's a kind of a Frankenstein-King Kong mashup. Yeah. In, again, the most kind of satisfying, satisfying way possible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Robot, the giant robot or robot, um, has a, you know, a big place in my memory because it was such an intense transition for me for um, moving from John Pertwee to uh, uh, to Tom Baker and I was fully ready at that age to hate a new doctor <laughs> by the end of the you know second episode of robot I was like yeah this is awesome right yeah. with this this is this is fine I've got no problem with this at all you know bring it on basically so you know he, he was able to win me round mm-hmm. Um, and I was very, very re- reluctant to get one round. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. And I think his professionalism really shows in the two two stories that he did for Bob Holmes, uh, The Brain of Morbius, which Holmes totally rewrote when uh, Dix was on vacation. And uh, Dix famously, his story is just name it any old bland thing. He didn't want to take credit for it since it was... Uh, rewritten by the script editor Robert Holmes, so it was right. uh, under Robin Bland. But 
that is a highly influential story on the current crop of producers, especially like Stephen Moffat, who reuses the sisterhood of Karn and a lot of the ideas from Morbius. But then we have State of Decay, which was rejected because BBC was doing a vampire thing. So that got punted down to the 80s. It would have been a, a Leela and Doctor story. But then the emergency script, and I think it's one of the most brilliant Doctor Who scripts, you know, it's it takes the base under siege format that kind of got its start in the 1960s with Patrick Troughton, and we have a lighthouse under siege with Horror of Fang Rock, and it, it is an amazing self-contained story with interesting villains, uh, interesting uh, villains that turn to be allies, uh, just tragedy, uh, suspense, uh, a new monster with... Uh, kisses back to uh, again the rutan santaran war it, it just is a really satisfying four episodes of doctor who and i think that's like his best script i think it's it's absolutely astounding to me that fang rock is it was something that he wrote you know as an emergency script mm-hmm. it's kind of jaw-dropping right um that that's what he came up with when he was like oh i don't know what to do i'll write this in you know it's it's I, I it's, it's almost beyond belief, you know, that that was something that he wrote ostensibly very, very quickly under, you know, strange circumstances. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe that's what we should have done with Terry is like, you know, forced <laughs> him to write stuff <laughs> over at a high weekend. speed <laughs> yeah. over a weekend because it is, it is, it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And not only is it brilliant kind of narrative wise and plot wise and the characters are nuanced and there are no... You know the the everyone gets their just desserts, <laughs> and there are fake outs and mm-hmm. switches, and uh, but it's also superbly constructed to take place in a studio, right? Um, you know he's also think this is what the, I think this is where the professionalism thing comes in again. You know he's still like, well, okay, this is an emergency script. You know the sets have got to be easy to make. Um, it's all got to be in. Was it? Did they shoot this one in Pebble Mill? Yeah, they did. Yeah, you know, this has all got to be in Pebble Mill. Everyone's got to truck up to Birmingham to do this. <laughs> um, blah 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 blah. And he's he's thinking about that as well, right? You know, yeah. um, and also, you know, he's taking stuff from other people. You know, he's he's reading the Ballad of Flannan Isle, which no doubt he was forced <laughs> to learn as a schoolboy. Yes. You know, in the in the nineteen forties or whenever he was a schoolboy. And, you know, and then he's mixing it up with his, you know, with his friend Bob Holmes and the and the Sontarans. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just brilliant. It's just great. Yeah. It is brilliant. No, mm-hmm. it's, it's brilliant. It's mm-hmm. brilliant. Yeah, it is. It's literally it's literally brilliant. I would challenge anyone to find a better piece of genre television writing than the horror of Fang Rock. Right. And. You can tell that he had a good working relationship with Bob Holmes. So just from, uh, even though he was, you know, wanted his name off the credit for Brandon Morbius, but he came back the following year and he wrote two scripts for him. State of Decay, which would have been The Great Vampires. That was uh, punted by the BBC because they were doing a Dracula for uh, drama. So that got mothballed. And so, like I said, they have this emergency script, Horror and Fang Rock. So two scripts. So obviously he had a really good working relationship and it was professional. Uh, later on, in, when Bidmead came in for the final season of Tom Baker, uh, they were scrambling for scripts and they took off the great vampires from storage out of mothballs and asked Dix to 
rewrite it for a new companion and introduced or have Adric in it. And his professionalism again comes through. I mean, he didn't like all the techno babble that Bidmead added onto it, but he delivered. He did what he was contracted to do to get the script up to date for the 1980s new producer and new uh, new companions. And I think it's instructive that when when uh, Nathan Turner was looking, casting around desperately for someone who would be able to write The Five Doctors, which, you know, um, <laughs> if you give it more than 10 seconds thought, you realize is like, this is really, really difficult. Mm. And, you know, maybe Nathan Turner should have thought of that before that was planned, if you see what I mean. Right. You know, it's, 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 it's a... It, it's a that's a difficult one to write, um, and you know. Didn't, I believe they originally he and Sayward originally commissioned Bob Holmes to do it. Bob Holmes tried it and said, "Can't do yeah, it. This, you have this. This is impossible. Yeah, you, you can't do this. Your, your punch list is too long. There's no way you can get a story in. Yeah. And, you uh, got yeah. There's ever there's all the doctors. Um, there's all the doctors' monsters. There's all <laughs> the doctors' companions. The ones who aren't in rep at the moment. We can actually hire. Right. You know, there's one doctor who doesn't really want to be in it. You know, etc. Mm-hmm. etc. This is simply not doable. Um, and you know, Terry comes along and says, "Yeah, okay, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just have at this." <laughs> um, and you know, the 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 five doctors is not my favorite, and it you know, it, it's got it's got some flaws to it. Um, I'm looking at you, the hill of reasonable. <laughs> Uh, reasonable pe- unreasonable peril um <laughs> that the but, one um, that sarah jane falls down or the, the one that sarah jane gently rolls down in terror uh, <laughs> um uh, but you know it's it rattles along and everyone's everyone's got something to do mm-hmm. um no one seems disappointed with what they have to do and uh it, all you know again i'm looking at you freakishly tall William Hartnell <laughs> clone um you know it's it, it it's 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 a really great piece of storytelling mm-hmm. you know and it's he's he's not ashamed to be really good at what he does um he's got no ambitions to be Dostoevsky or something right. or someone um but you know he is a man who knows his limitations um which are and constraints relatively, <laughs> relatively few um uh and, and he and he knows his constraints you know he's a there's a job to do and right. the job is to write an entertaining episode of a genre kids sort of sci-fi show. That is the job. And I will do this job really, really well because mm-hmm. that is that is what I know I am good at. And I think he captured 1983 really well in it because effectively this is Doctor Who, the role-playing game. This is Dungeons and Dragons meets Doctor Who in the form of a television serial. It works really well with, you know, random wandering monster encounters, old friends, ghost enemies. It's really Dungeons and Dragons Doctor Who, which was really popular in 1983. Yeah. Did you come to uh, The Five Doctors first through the novelization that was printed by Target before the broadcast, or did you see it upon broadcast? Ah, you know, I can't actually remember. Um, I mean, 82 is... Is, is cracking on a little bit for me. Um, uh, it's it's verging on my... Uh, I'm starting <laughs> to lose interest in this program for right. time. Uh, I, I suspect... I think I read the novelization first. Mm-hmm. I um, think most of the UK did, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because for some reason... Well, reasons best known to John Nathan Turner, who, you know, moved in a mysterious way, they published the novelization first. Mm-hmm. 
um and then it was on tv yeah um and you know dicks also wrote the novelization for god's sake you mm-hmm. know it's like wow um, and then uh, the, the, you know the novelization of Five Doctors isn't isn't the, isn't the, isn't his best mm-hmm. um, because you know he's not really there's not really a lot of ca- there's not a lot of characterization to be done right. because we all know who the characters are um, there's not a lot of world building to be done because we know where the world is but it's yeah it's it's pretty good but no I I read I read the book first I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure did you watch any of his Moonbase three that he did with Barry Lutz after Doctor Who. No completely unaware of that ah. that went completely over my head i'd know i you, until i started you know being a fan and like reading up about doctor Who, i'd know it no no idea that Moonbase three even existed mm-hmm. which is weird because i mean i was pretty tuned into sci-fi but um i don't know it came out in 73 uh, so you were probably right a, a, a tad right. on the young side for it I would oh yeah think. well that's well that's true yeah 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 mm-hmm. okay well that makes that that makes better sense mm-hmm. Did you watch any of his uh, classic serial, the classic serial where he was script editor and then producer for that? Uh, everybody watched the classic serial. I have no memory of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're 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 pretty uh, anonymous. You know, it's a bunch of people clumping around in Edwardian stroke. Yeah, it's like Great Expectations Victor- or Victorian Jane Eyre. dress. Yeah, you know, you know, declaiming at each other. Um, yeah, I mean, they were that the classic serial was like a, a standard, you know, Sunday. Sunday tea time thing, and I I watched them, but I had no again at the time. I wouldn't have been going like, oh, this is Terence Dicks. He was that Doctor Who person I like so much. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even it wouldn't even occur to me to have checked. Yeah, for me, I came across Terence Dicks first as the writer of the Robot, and then Horror Fang Rock. Because for fandom in the early eighties, how was I to know that Terence Dicks was Robin Bland, for example? Right. Uh, it wasn't really. The Target novels were few and far between to find in when I first started watching Doctor Who. So I came across uh, Dick's at first, as I said, through the television. But then he became the language of Doctor Who. He's the one who came up with the cliche. It wouldn't be a cliche at the time, but he would come up with a phrase that he would use to describe uh, a character. Like the most, I think, famous one is the plain open face of yeah. Davison's Doctor. And that was that was it. That was the language that fandom adopted to talk about their doctors. Yeah. And Dix was just a really concise, uh, economical writer that these succinct descriptions became... Uh, shorthand in fandom but really as i grew older as a reader i found myself gravitating more towards uh, ian martyr or malcolm hulk than dicks because of the sparseness and of the description of moving just the plot forward etc and i think maybe in certainly some of the later novelizations he was a little bit kind of trapped by the uh his professionalism piece where you know he was basically getting the getting the book written um, and not putting a huge amount of extra stuff in it because you know the book had to be written on time. You know he's a right. perfect example of you know not not letting um oh, what's the phrase, um the perfect be enemy of the good or something whatever right. it is. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know he was that 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 was his thing. It was more important to to get it done than to be late and have it perfect. Absolutely, yep, yep. He was not a perfectionist. Um, he was lucky <laughs> enough to be very very good so you know his his not so good was pretty much other people's perfect but i think um some of those later novels did suffer a little bit from the kind of okay i got to get this done now yeah a little bit yeah yeah and then wilderness years uh, virgin used him to kind of kick off 
the new adventures with yeah. uh, Time Word Exodus. Very, very smart decision. Um, you know, it does. I mean, it, it is interesting looking at his or uh, reading his his uh, Virgin New Adventures and some of the other you know novelized. You know, he it was obviously there were things that he was interested in. You know, mm-hmm. because of his age and you know of his upbringing, he was interested in World War Two. Um, right. He was curious about Nazis um, and have them being <laughs> evil because you know you grow up with the Nazis being being evil. And they are. Uh, and they still. are. That's true. They still are. No matter how people might want to change our minds nowadays, they are actually still evil people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was very much enamored of the war games, I think. He liked yep. the war games and the war chief and the war this, that, and the other. Um, all the war people <laughs> from the war, the war, the war, the war culture. They weren't uh, the village people. They were the war people. The war people, yes. Yep. Um, so, you know, there were things that he liked to write about. And... Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I find his novelizations of his scripts and his novelizations of other people's scripts to be more effective pieces of writing, to be honest, than his. Uh, I'm I'm writing a you know I'm I'm writing a book now. Right. Uh, you know his non-script based writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what you think. I don't know how many many of those you you've read. Well, with the new adventures, certainly none of them. And he was c- coming off John Peel, and I think I remember at the time, and this is just. Uh, uh, in passing, thinking, oh, okay, uh, they got Taron Sticks, so this this series is going to go somewhere, right? And so I think he uh, has the Doctor Who gravitas to legitimize uh, this spinoff adventure in the Wilderness Era in uh, 19, 1991, I think, is when Time War Exodus, the second uh, story in the Time Worm Quartet. Right. novels came out so yeah and then when bbc took back the range they had him write the eight doctors which uh again helped legitimize uh their role and that was the first release in in the when bbc took the helm back from virgin right right yeah no everyone mm-hmm. uh, yeah you know when, he's a he's a kind of as you said he's kind of a legitimizing imprimatur of quality um, that people, okay, let's get Terry to write something because that will demonstrate to everybody that this is going to be good. Plus, you know, when you start out, I think the, what was the first BBC novel? Was that The Eight Doctors? I know it was like... Yeah, The Eight Doctors. It was a whole bunch of doctors. Um, He's the one who can, you know, he can wrangle wrangle a bunch of doctors the best. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So uh, I think also, if memory serves, he wrote Shakedown too, which was a spinoff. Uh, oh yeah, he did. That's true. Yeah, uh, spinoff script. So is what whoever was trying to capture Doctor Who when it wasn't on BBC One would always look to Terence Dix for that legitimacy, for for the credibility with fandom that this is not just uh, some fly by night uh, fan or money grab type thing because well Terrence Dix ironically was involved in it and uh, I get the impression with like a lot of the later Target novels that this was uh, a way of making money for Terry when he wasn't in uh, uh, actively doing script editing yeah which is fair enough and you know Mm -hmm. he's a man who's interested in making money nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with that and I think that's all part of this professional thing you know it's a job Mm -hmm. Um, and part of the reason you do a job is to make money Mm-hmm. Um, because you've got to put, you know, the dinner on the table and you've got to put your kids through whatever public school he sent his children to, I'm sure, <laughs> um, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, I think the other thing, and I, I, 
again, just like looking at the kind of Twitter over the weekend and the redoubtable Elizabeth Sandifer yeah. um, was opining as usual and saying, you know, that the, the, Terrence Dick's deeply flawed human being responsible for the wishy-washy liberalness of so much of early Doctor Who, blah, blah, blah. But and then she said, <laughs> and, but I still love him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, it's the, 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 he is responsible for the way that we feel the Doctor should act. He's responsible for the never gives up, never gives in, never right. cruel or cowardly thing, which is still, I think, uh, certainly as it was strongly adopted by Moffat, that's what we right. imagine the Doctor does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he is, the Doctor is someone who never believes that the ends justify the means. That's, again, that was a stock phrase that Dix used throughout his novelizations and TV, you right. know, that, 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 that you... The, uh, unlike the revolutionaries of the 1960s or 1970s or whatever, who, you know, did, but all early 20th century, um, who, you know, Lenin believed that the, the means justify the ends. Terence Dix was a, you know, one nation conservative who thought that we should all get along. And what's important is what you're doing right now, rather than what you're planning to do in the future. Um, mm. And if, if you have to kill someone now in order to save 50 people in the future, well, what you've just done is kill someone right now. And that's not good. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know if he's, I guess he's more of a classic conservative than what we have today. I, he, he's, he's almost liberal on the spectrum today, I would think. Well, I, I use a particular English phrase, which is one nation conservative, which is a, okay. it's a, it's a, it's it, that's what you've just described. It's someone who we would now, who, you know, he's more of a liberal. So all mm-hmm. the conservative MPs that Boris Johnson's just sacked from the Conservative Party um, for, you know, voting against all his Brexit ridiculousness, they're all one nation conservatives. Um, mm. And that's basically, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a form of vaguely right wing ideology that is about, it's a, it's a, a patrimony so you know that there's a strata to society if you're at the top of society your job is to look after the people who are in the lower parts of society um Mm. your job is not to exploit them and make as much money as you can as quickly as possible noblesse oblige you know you are a lord and a lord has a has a responsibility to look after the people of whom they are lords over. And I think this comes back to, you know, what we were developing as a theme when we were talking about Pertwee, this idea of, of, of Pertwee as a lord of some kind. Right. And, you know, I think in certain, you know, obviously in kind of contemporary conservatism, we've lost the concept that if you do have a high rank in society, your job is to look after the people of the lower rank. Um, your job is not to screw them over. And, you know, that's what I think one means by one nation conservative. Yeah, there's still responsibility. You have uh, responsibility, yes, yes. mm -hmm. You know, uh, rank has its privileges, but it also has its responsibilities. Yeah, duty. Duty, yes, exactly. And I think that's a very, very strong English-British thing from, you know, the mid-20th century. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the many things that are wrong in my opinion, with, you know, current politics is that we've kind of lost sight of, you know, duty and um, all that kind of stuff, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So circling back to childhood and reading, was Terrence Dick's other children's novels on your uh, shelf at all? Or was it no. mostly just Doctor Who that no, was, Doctor was Who the capturing? Yeah. I mean, I think I maybe got out from the library some of his... 
there were like space adventures with two kids mm-hmm. who had adventures in space. Um, they didn't do a huge amount for me, really. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. What I was interested in reading about was Doctor Who, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly at that age, I really wasn't differentiating a huge amount between is this Terrence Dix or is this you know, Malcolm Hulk or is this Bill Stratton or is this Ian Martyr? I just wanted to read Doctor Who, basically. And I wanted to read good Doctor Who that was well written mm-hmm. and was ex- as exciting as I knew Doctor Who was, was when it was on TV. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. I, I think the one contribution that in retrospect that we haven't really touched on that is ongoing and everlasting for Doctor Who is with him and Barry Letts coming up with the nemesis, the Moriarty, for the Doctor, the Master. And that is, uh, uh, Terrence Dick's fingerprints are all over that. Yeah, and I think this, again, this goes back to a theme that we've touched on before in the podcast, which is these writers and these producers and these showrunners and these script editors, you know, are, because they want something to be successful what they're always looking at is okay what did we read when we were kids we just need to put some sci-fi on top of that and bam we've got some doctor who so you know it's perfectly obvious that when terence dix was growing up he was reading sherlock holmes um so then it's an obvious you know with barry letts it's an obvious solution to okay how do we make this more relatable and more exciting and maybe less quatermassy with the second season of john pert we let's have a moriarty Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and it, and it kind of kind of writes itself. Okay, well, who is? Well, he's obviously he's another Time Lord. Obviously, right. uh, what does he look like? Uh, he looks like Roger Delgado, obviously, because he's an evil looking guy. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it, it's, yeah, and it's it's it kind of writes itself. And I think that's that's a kind of interesting and sort of slightly weird thing about Dix's writing in general. There is a sense of it of it kind of unfolding, almost effortless, effortless, yeah, effortlessly. Um, almost as if it was writing itself, you know, these, mm-hmm. these things, it just, yeah, this is how the master would behave and this is how he would arrive. And, you know, he'd be mean to some clowns is the first <laughs> thing he'd do. It's great. Yeah. He's, it's, and then, of course, the master, um, whatever uh, gender the master wishes to, <laughs> wishes to don at any particular time has proved to be a durable and effective villain as you might expect him to be so. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I mean, in terms of reading, who? I mean, uh, were you reading the kind of pinnacle novelizations? Yeah, I read the pinnacle series. I didn't really. Re- I I wasn't like the children in the UK. Doctor Who was on when I was really into Doctor Who five days a week at five or five thirty. So Doctor Who was always on. And then Doctor Who is on when I was older as a teenager on Friday and Saturday evenings, two different doctors running. And so there wasn't as much of a need to hit the novels. And the novels were really expensive at the time. And so because they were British imports, they were geared towards a younger reader. And by the time I was reading, I was, you know, 15, 16, they just weren't doing, doing it for me. So I really never consumed the novels like, the children of the UK in the 70s and 80s because they didn't have the repeats and they wanted to see the stories. For me, uh, the Silurians was on television. I didn't need to go read it. Or uh, the Power of Kroll I had on videotape so I could just watch the Power of Kroll. I didn't need to read Dix's uh, novelization of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just find that astounding when you say, you know, the Silurians was on television. That's like, wow, imagine... 
living in a country where you could just watch the Solarians <laughs> and if you missed it, it would probably be on again in six months. Yeah, um, yeah that's extraordinary for, to me. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, the Solarians, I, I must have, and that's Matt Hulk, not, not Terrence. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, but... I must have read that, you know, uh, until it basically fell apart, I think, that mm-hmm. book. But yeah. Yeah, the same thing like for Terror of the Autons or Spearhead from Space. It is, it's, it was on television. There wasn't the wasn't the reason to pick up the novelization for it. Yeah, yeah. And and by the time that, you know, I think VHS recording was a lot more prevalent in the States than it was in the UK in the early 1980s. Right. And so people would have their home 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 libraries, so you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't read the Auton Invasion, you'd just watch your off-the-air copy of Spearhead from Space. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. Terrence, such a mm-hmm. you know, so many DVD special features with you mm. know, and his you know, he had this marvelous. Talk about his actually, I was a friend, but I didn't had only met him once. Anyway, um, you know, he had this marvelous speech impediment, which was such a part of his character. I think um, whenever um, I used to make my dear wife watch. Um, uh, DVD extras, which only very, very rarely, she always find Terence very, really amusing mm-hmm. because he has a you know particular kind of you know uh, the color of monsters is green, right? <laughs> particularly kind of British speech impediment, mm-hmm. and you know he was obviously he was a character, he was a great character, uh, you know one of those people who um, as he got older got fatter. <laughs> but refused to buy any new shirts. Uh, <laughs> so basically just stopped wearing a tie and started wearing his shirts open with more and more buttons mm-hmm. um, because, you know, obviously he's way too tight to actually get some get some shirts with bigger collars. <laughs> um, just, you know, just a really great character and just a really kind of great kind of English mm-hmm. character and, you know, all the things that are good and bad about that, mm-hmm. really, in some ways. Um, it's, a, it's a crying shame. And I think there was a... There was a move to have this done, but I don't think it really got anywhere. It's a crying shame that he never got an honor. Mm. Um, you know, he should have been he should have been an OBE for contributions to children's literature and television. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, you know, if you look at if someone like you know um, uh, 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 J.K. Rowling can get an honor. I mean, it's <laughs> scandalous that someone like Terence Dix never never got one. And what's sad, of course, is he would have loved. To have had something like that, Sir Terry, I, I, yeah, Sir Terry, or you even just Terry Dix OBE, mm-hmm. I think would have been good enough. I don't think you know you'd necessarily need to be knighted, mm-hmm. but you know he's definitely someone who is was a an important figure in English culture, mm-hmm. British culture, mm-hmm. very very important figure, and certainly beloved by Doctor Who fandom, especially yeah. uh, fans of a certain age who grew up in the seventies and eighties, yeah. And, you know, kids who wanted to read something familiar in the library, yeah. you know, it's, if you're not a great reader, it's kind of intimidating to like, oh, I, maybe I should start reading Charles Dickens or, you know, whatever, you know, and, uh, or, you know, t- reading a book from scratch. What was great about those Doctor Who novelizations is you already kind of knew the story because you'd already seen it on TV. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it was a, it was a non-threatening read which was also thrilling and exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that's the key to the popularity of those books. And that's why so many people have been saying over the past, you know, week or so that, you know, Terence Dix was the person who got me reading. Yes. 
And yeah. on that note, uh, his son, Jonathan Dix, has a Just Giving fundraiser out in memory of his father for Save the Children, which is a UK organization that encourages kids to read and achieve literacy. And the address for that, if you want to make a contribution, we don't normally uh, do fundraising here on Metabilis too, but it is justgiving.com slash fundraising slash Terrence Dix. And he has 82 supporters as of uh, recording this with a little over 2,100 pounds. So if, uh, very good, it's a good way of remembering, uh, the, the love of reading and literature that Terrence instilled in so many, uh, so many of, uh, Doctor Who fans. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so a, gr- a, a great man. And I think, you know, very often we don't honor people who are maybe, you know, maybe more modest with their talents and uh, who, you know, who work at something that they're good at rather than aspiring to be something that they're bad at, if you see what I mean. <laughs> um, you know, he was he was a man who knew what he was good at and he was good at doing it and did it really, really well. Indeed. A, pr- a true yeah. professional true professional salve <laughs> terence dicks uh, well uh, hopefully he and, uh, well, I, I, and I, actually there's one more thing i was going to add again it was interesting i've only recently joined twitter so it's like what is all this nonsense <laughs> um it is interesting um seeing um how you know a younger the difference between kind of younger fans and older fans um i'm at a certain age now where you know if you reach the age of 84 and then you die that's pretty good going. And, you know, um, there are some people who live longer than that. So William Russell, I'm still looking at you. But, you know, Terence lived a good long life and he had a great time living that life. And one can be sad that he's gone, but not particularly unexpected um, at that age. And also, he obviously was someone who lived the life that he wanted to live and was successful, incredibly successful according to his own measure, and that's something to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we feel sad because we can no longer maybe directly interact with him on a human to human basis. But, you know, we should feel happy because he left behind all these wonderful stories and all these wonderful books and all these amazing TV shows. Um, so he never will die. Mm-hmm. Unlike unlike the rest of us, a hundred years from now, I'm pretty sure people will still be thinking, talking about Terrence Sticks. And furthermore, he inspired a whole generation of writers. Uh, Paul Cornell has a tribute. Rob Sherman just has a wonderful tribute about how he was a stammerer and he interviewed Terrence Dix for a fanzine and uh, Terrence Dix called him a writer and that that helped him uh, believe in himself and became a writer. So you can, you can see this continuity from Dix to Sherman or Dix to Cornell. And then the writers that they will inspire that this, you'll have this legacy that Terrence Dix started as being a writer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. So, uh, so there you go. That is uh Terrence Dix and uh, Terrence Dix. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, everyone in the writers' room where he is is buying him, a, <laughs> buying him around at the BBC Canteen in the the afterlife, the, the <laughs> celestial writers' room. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, thank you for listening to episode uh, one twenty six of the Metabolist Two podcast. I have been reminiscing about Terrence Dix with Ben. And I have been reminiscing about Turner Sticks with David. And uh, 
We don't know when the next episode's coming out. I'm doing a little bit of traveling, so we will talk to you uh, probably sometime before October, but maybe not until October. Until then, be wonderful people. There you go. <laughs> and uh, slip a few uh, coins off yes. to just giving to to save the children to remember remember Uncle yep. Terry. Yep. Never be ashamed of being professional. <laughs> wonderful. All right. Yep. Thanks for listening. Okay, bye. if I'll ask you a particular question, which is, um, Terence, how would you like to be remembered? Which, um, it's not quite the way I'd have written it if I'd put it in a script, but um, Terence, how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> well, I was earlier on, before we got to this uh, discussion, I, I was talking to the uh, director of this epic who had interviewed several other people earlier on, and he said that one of the words that came up a lot in talking about you was professional. And I thought, really, they know that that's the answer. I mean, to give a quick illustration of that, when we've been on the show quite well for about five years, I got a phone call from the rehearsal hall and the, a message from the director saying um, there's a huge problem on the script, terrible script problem with the director and the actors. Um, the director needs to talk to you. And uh, when I got the message, I phoned back. And his PA said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, he can't talk to you now because he's rehearsing a scene, but I know he really does want to talk to you, it's quite urgent. And I said, um, okay, I said, tell him to ring me when he's free and tell him not to worry because whatever it is, I will fix it. And I thought afterwards, that sound, you know, that, came, that just kind of came out and I thought, that sounds bloody conceited, but... I thought after five years, you know, having hit most of the problems on Doctor Who, I'm fairly confident that I can fix it, you know, and that's professionalism, when you feel that um, you've got a grip on the job and are doing it as well as you possibly can. So I guess that's how I'd like to be remembered, as a professional. Hmm. And, 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 and one of the big things is that, as a producer, you need to work with somebody professional because you can trust them. Yeah. <laughs> Monster, the colour for monsters is green for some reason or other.